Hi there, Glocal Citizens. It's Florence Adu again, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. This week, I'm coming to you from London in the United Kingdom. I'm here with a very inspirational and talented gentleman. His name is Kwame Achiampong. Did I say that right? Yes, you said that right. I said it well, right? Very, very well. <laughs> Kwame is sound engineer by training and by passion. He is also the COO of Link Commerce, linkcommerce.com. And he is a serial entrepreneur by my estimation. He has been at the lead of a few different very dynamic organizations, which you'll know and hear more about in our conversation. And I think I'll leave my introduction here and take it away, Kwame. Tell us more about you and what you do. Oh, about me? Well, I guess <laughs> the simple way or the complex way, I don't even know where to start, but I guess I just start from the beginning. I started my career, you want to call it a career, as a sound engineer, and I was fortunate enough to just about experience it from a professional side at the tail end before things started going very digital and music production became, shall I say, digital, I should say, and very singular. And what I mean by that, when we started music back in the day, it was a very collaborative in recordings, huge recording studios where, you know, everybody had their position. It was a really collaborative effort. Whereas nowadays, it's basically someone in the bedroom behind a laptop. And mm. back then, it was really team spirit and it was, it was it was happy days. So, yeah, I just managed to get the tail end of it before everything went, started going down south. So that was probably through the early 2000s, right? No, late, late 90s. Late 90s, okay. Before MP3 came. Oh, okay. And when MP3 came, everything started going down, down the drain. Got it. Because of the volume that you could produce. With, yeah. With you know, that. it's just people started sharing songs mm -hmm. and everything became more digital. It became more affordable. Mm -hmm. So people started having studios at home. Mm -hmm. And also the production of music became much cheaper. Got it. And also people were not buying records anymore and stuff like that because you could now just copy things very easily. Just before you couldn't really copy a vinyl. Right. <laughs> you right. had to buy a vinyl. Right. Or you, what we did is we played the record and then recorded it on a tape. Yes. <laughs> but still, yes. Yeah. yeah. But it was not that easy copyable. But you couldn't play a tape in a club and stuff like that. Right, Whereas exactly. now, you know, yeah. you can play MP3s everywhere. And having studied engineering, business and computing, I was always forefront of technology. So I could actually see it coming. Mm -hmm. So I did my last stint, which was with a guy called Bootsy Collins. And it was my last thing, which just left me on a high. And after that, right. actually, no, no. He was actually. like a father of the funk. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I did this comeback album okay. um, straight out of P University, which was great. But actually, we did it in Germany. Straight out of P University? Yeah. Straight out of the P funk yeah, university? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. So, and that was involved him and there was MC Light as well and stuff like that. So I worked uh -huh. on a track with him and MC Light. Sure. And I'm on track with it. Anyway, it's, it's on the album. And then, yeah. We'll put that in the show notes, folks. Yeah, put in the show notes. Keep yeah. University. Yeah, so, yeah. and then I did a small stint in Vegas with Gladys Knight. And then I decided to come back to the UK and have an, basically go into nine to five. 
Mm. You know, so yeah, it was, I left it on a high and it was great. So, you know, I just straight from that. Luckily for me, at that point in time, there was a new movement called New Media, which was basically the combination of sound, visuals and graphics and authoring on CD-ROMs. That became the new, that thing called digital showreels were done on that. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Yeah. So it was a great big craze and a big organization. So, okay, how could we take that to advantage? And that's the whole thing when the whole authoring came, whereby, I mean, for those who know the CBT, computer-based training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So obviously my background in computing, programming, and sound gave me a lucky break to work for a company called Anderson Consultant. And I was... Now st- Accenture, right? Yeah, now Accenture, mm-hmm. yeah. So I was part of the management consulting team, straight from music, <laughs> into management <laughs> consulting. Right. Basically, visiting blue chips and creating, basically, change management documentation. Sure. And I, from that, converting it into computer-based training, so make it much more dynamic instead of just reading a big, boring handbook. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got my foot into the corporate world, the blue chip corporate world, which I think, I don't, I don't know, I guess it was a lucky break. It was at the right place at the right time. So I did that. And then kind of got bored of that. And I thought I might just try investment banking. <laughs> you got bored of consulting and became an investment banker. That's well, not investment banker, but I was on the tech side. Industry. Okay, Yeah, so it was more on the trading side of things. Sure. Trading flows, yep. trading systems. Mm-hmm. Again, technology, technology and business. Yep. So I've always been tech and business. And then I did that for a year again. And then the dot-com boom came. Right. And I said, I want a piece of that. Okay. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's not having to wear a suit, just getting your jeans and sneakers and, you know, having free food was great. <laughs> <laughs> I, got I remember piece of those that. days. I got a piece of that. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I remember those days. It was fun times at the launch parties. Yeah, so I, again, had a lucky break. And that's because my first language is German because I was brought up in Switzerland as mm-hmm. part of my youth and stuff. So there was a company called DoubleClick, which... Most of you might have seen or not heard, but when you click on something, you will see at the doubleclick.com and that is us. So DoubleClick, I was one of the founding employees in the UK office. So I was the very beginning and basically DoubleClick is the company that invented online advertising in terms of banner technology and stuff like that. So those were, I think, my best years where I learned a lot. I was traveling the world 24-7. I was hardly in London basically just rolling out the technology around the world. I mean, from London down to India, Russia, name it. We, I was there. I was one of the teams. So, and basically, yeah, what we, my team was, it was an engineering team and we created all the new features. Even one of the features that my team created is what you see now on Google, the post-roll and pre-roll. So when you watch YouTube video, the, mm-hmm. the ad that comes before it and in between. Oh, okay. That is my team that we built that. And so basically the reason why is it Google, because Google bought us. Right, right. Yeah, and that in, happened the, in? 2007, 2009. Okay, uh, they got it. Us, uh, yeah, so they bought us, I think, for about $4 billion. Got it. So it was a nice payout. Right. Um, so then I had to work for Google for a while just to work my notice. <laughs> 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 I couldn't wait to get out quick. Sure. Yeah. So I left Google and then, well, I didn't move Google. I got approached by a client that I set up when I was a double click. And this guy is, uh, is a company called HD Pool and they were Eastern European network. And basically I helped them set up. And with my blueprints, they became the biggest ad network in Eastern Europe. So they wanted 
uh, someone to open the UK operation. Mm-hmm. And they, were here. they came for me and said, listen, do you, I know you, you and Google, you want to leave, you want, you want to leave. And basically they wanted me to open the UK operation, be the managing director for the UK. And that's what happened. I left Google and then I joined them and I opened the UK office. And I think that was my sort of like my first gig in actually opening a proper office for a proper company and having like this. It was quite daunting, but it was interesting time to learn a lot from that. So what exact, so they were the biggest ad network network in yeah. Eastern Europe? Yes. Okay. And the reason why they wanted to open the UK office is because most of the ad spend or ad budget was coming from, from UK. Here. Got it. So before them, and this is quite interesting point, is that if company wanted to do an ad campaign online mm-hmm. or digital in Eastern Europe, they would have to go to different countries to strike different deals. Ah, okay. Right. Right. But because we were in all those countries, mm-hmm. they came through. So now it was it's much better for you to come to one single point in the UK, right? At one point, and then we did disseminate it across the whole of Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's how we won the business, and that's how we won Facebook. So we, well, we I'm still I still got stakes in there. We basically um, represent Facebook, LinkedIn. And everything in that region. Mm-hmm. So if you want to advertise on the Facebook and stuff that they come through us. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So that's it. But then again, something turned. The development team for HD Pool was, um, what shall I say? They developed a payment system for Eastern Europe called Megapause. Mm-hmm. Right. And around about that time, e-commerce was booming, binging up. And But the fact that in Ghana or West Africa, basically, people couldn't buy shop online because of payment issues and stuff like that. That was two, about 2010. Right. And there was no PayPal in Africa or right. in Ghana and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I said, hey, why not? I'm going to create some PayPal for Ghana. And that's where we came up with a company called ProfPay. Okay. And basically, I told the guys at HD Pool, listen, why don't you go into Africa? And they said, yeah, why not? Um, we've done the UK stuff. Let's close the UK office. Oh, okay. Yeah. And right, because by then everything you could do without having a presence. Yes, like because could, yeah, everything we, was online like properly yes, by that time. Yeah, yeah, Got yeah. it. So we done the deals here, and you need it. So um, they said, okay, they'll back me. So basically, I came up with a sweat, sweat equity deal, and HD Pool basically gave me the tech team mm-hmm. to build the payment gateway for Ghana. Okay. Because ProfPay. And then we had a private equity company, um, Serengeti, that put money in as well. Mm-hmm. And we had a few people coming in. And basically, we built a platform. And it did pretty well, actually. You know, we signed up House of Fraser, Argos, a few big stores that wanted to get into Africa. And basically, we were doing it for them. So it's kind of like PayPal, but with all the local payment options, mm-hmm. which people wasn't given at the time. Mm-hmm. And they were not there anyway. Plus logistics. So we did all the logistics as well. In terms of getting the goods yeah. to the buyers. Yeah. So even if you were in, in Ghana or Nigeria or somewhere like that, then you had a card, maybe an expat, and you could shop online. Even if it, if it went through at that time, we usually wouldn't because the, the merchants would block anything coming from Africa. Any payment. Right. Yeah. yeah. But if you managed to get through with a VPN and circumvent that, sure. they wouldn't shit. Because they didn't know how to get it to you. Right. There's no addresses and stuff like that. And you couldn't verify the card against the address and all that. So they Got wouldn't it. ship. Right, of course. So obviously, us coming up with a payment gateway was great. But we had to find a way to do it. And that's why the merchant liked us. Because what happens is you, when you pay us in Ghana or Nigeria, you pay us. And we then settle the merchant in the UK mm-hmm. or in the US. Mm-hmm. And then basically, they don't have to worry about Forex. And also, their shipping is to do with the UK because they shipped to our UK warehouse. Got it. And then we did freight for it back to Ghana, Nigeria. Got it. So 
Let me take a pivot right mm. there because you started talking about West Africa. So mm. up until then, your experience was with U.S. with the music, potentially, and U.K. Mm. with the tech and the business side. Ghana. Mm-hmm. You're Ghanaian. Yes. <laughs> so tell us more about, and you mentioned that you grew up in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about that, your background in that sense, and some of your inspiration. Do you know what? Actually, that's the big piece I missed out, mm-hmm. which now you guys. So what drove me to go back to Ghana, really, to actually understand the market is, in 2000, there was this movement in the UK, or in the, especially France, by a guy called Bob Sinclair, and uh, they were doing this music called a house music called Africanism. Oh, Africanism. Okay. Mm-hmm. And basically what these guys would do, they would take this house loop and get some African sort of drums and samples and put it on top of it and call it like Africanism. Okay. I mean, I, I remember Bob Sinclair. Yeah. 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 And I'm like, hold on a second. Yeah. This is not right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so not right. Right? Right. So that was around 2000 to 2000. And I said, you know what? I got to go back to Ghana and record real African music. Okay, yeah. So having worked with Double Click and being there, I was quite flexible. I could work from anywhere. So mm-hmm. um, during my holidays and stuff, I would go to Ghana with a whole portable recording studio and basically record music and then put it on top of house music. But it's real music and, the, and the, I call it Afroganic. Okay, yeah. Afroganic. Mm-hmm. So Afroganic became quite massive. So... I obviously I, I know how to build websites and everything like that. So obviously <laughs> recording in Ghana. But actually the inspiration came from the way I recorded it came from Paul Simon, um mm-hmm. Graceland. Yeah. You remember when he went to South Africa yes. and recorded that? So that's, mm-hmm. I did the same thing. I just went to Ghana, I recorded and recorded and recorded. I didn't record songs, I just recorded materials. Right. Just materials. Right, right. Longs, I mean flutes, drums. The whole nine yards, basically hours of it, days of it. And then I came to London into my studio and sat there for hours at night and just putting an album together from all the elements. But this is like real elements. So when the album came together and the tracks were out, literally we're in the charts in the UK. And I think that time we were the only African people, actually, I could say from Ghana, Right. In the dance charts here. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. So especially dance charts in Ibiza and all that kind of stuff. Even the BBC picked it up. And to this day, I still get royalties from stuff they have picked up. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, there was one track called Ghana Sweet, which was massive, and another track called Yanni and stuff like that. Okay. So that inspired me to go back to Ghana. And, you know, whilst I was there, you know, I tried to buy stuff online. I couldn't buy stuff online. And oh, everything was just, nothing was working, you know. And then I think that's when I started to, hmm, Something needs to be done, but I didn't know what, you know, what. The, yeah. But anyway, so, so Africanic, we did Africanic. And basically, uh, if you, I'm, the website is still there, Africanic.com is still there, which they, I haven't touched that yet, website like 10 years now. <laughs> but it's still there. But you can can you buy music there? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think okay. we three. Uh, but yeah, it's been, I haven't updated it for like 10 years or 15 years yet. But the way I did it, basically, it's, um, it's a one-man show, basically. And <laughs> I kind of shot myself in the foot. Why? Because it did so well over here. And obviously showing all these artists and stuff I had, like, you know, as a guy called Dede um, Mabiaku, he's part of um, Fela's group and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it it looked all grand. Yeah. Oh, so it looked bigger. Yeah. So, so then they came to me. Larger they, than life. <laughs> they wanted me to come and do <laughs> concerts. <Yeah. laughs> and I'm like... Okay, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I tried, 
<laughs> but you know, being here and being and the artists in Ghana trying to rally them together to do stuff, yeah. it just didn't work. Right. So you know, I really lost that at that opportunity. So I kind of parked it, but then I didn't want to kill the brand again. I don't know by chance. I went to a launch of a guy called Jean Michel Jarre. Okay. Yeah, he did a swing called Arrow at Warner Brothers, and I met a guy called. Um, is he francophone? No, John Mijar is, is a French electronic musician. Okay. He's the one who did the biggest show in, in Tiananmen Square. Oh, okay. um, John Michel Jarre, it's he's massive. He's massive. He's a, he's a pioneer of electronic music, electronic shows, laser shows, and, and all that kind Got of it. stuff. Yeah. So anyway, through that, I met a guy called some A and R guy from Sony, and it was around about the time when there was the pop idol and the idol show, idol show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this girl won it, um, Fantasia. Okay. Yep. So. I don't know how it came about, but I pitched that I want to do one track for her. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and the guy in my said, and he looked at my stuff. He said, yeah, yeah, can you do that? And I said, yeah, I can give you some real organic R&B kind of stuff. He said, okay, well. So he gave me um, he gave me a track, the vocals, and said, okay, well, let's see what you can do. Mm-hmm. So I went back to Ghana that day, and basically I, I sat down in my living room in Ghana, remember. I had my bassist, Alaji, come in. I had young, my guitarist come in. I put a drum loop on. I, I synced her vocals to that. And we basically jammed. The track was done within an hour. I mean, wow. big. And then I put it to Sony and basically they took it. And it became number one, so, Billboard number one. So which which song was that? When I See You. Oh. So I did Side B. And that, funny enough. That song is Yeah. And funny song. enough. Coincidental. Yeah. The person who produced the original yeah. and wrote it, guess who it was? Guess whose name? I have no idea. Polka Dot Nation, remember? No. Kwame. Kwame. The rapper, Kwame. Ah, Kwa- ah. He, Who we called Kwame. Then. Kwame, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So really? he wrote so, the original, he wrote it, he, sure. he put the original track okay. and I did the B remix. So Kwame squared. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, what a coincidence. And then he became number one, Billboard number one. And from then, I just worked at the pioneer. So a day I was in Google. At night, I was in, stu- in the studio. Wow. Okay. So I uh, did from there, I, I mean, I did Fantasia, I did Jasmine Solomon, I did John Legend, I did Greenlight for John Legend, and every day with Legend, I did Spotlight for um, Jennifer Hudson, Hudson. Ah. Um, Jennifer Lopez, I did two of her tracks, um, Hold On, Hold hold Tight, Hang hang Tight, and I did Westlife, I did Jamie Oliver. It just uh, it, it just started pouring in. Chris Brown, I did his wall-to-wall track. I did John Kingston, When I See You. So when do you sleep? When were you sleeping? I wasn't so sleeping. So you saying by day you were I wasn't sleeping. at Google. And then at night, literally. So literally, my, my social work life at Google was non-existent. And people say, oh, after work, let's go in to the pub. Ah, I said, no. Right. So I didn't really... I didn't really to some sense, sometimes I regret that I didn't really do much work socializing sure. because, you know, because a lot of people now from there, they went into bigger things and I wasn't right, really... because, the, yeah, that was the nature and that is the nature. Yeah, so the, my my Google yeah. network was, has, no, my double click and Google network didn't really flourish that much because mm-hmm. I was doing stuff after work. Right. I was not really socializing work, which right. I would have loved to. But hey, I yeah, had all this. this was, like, <laughs> I mean, how do you how do you choose? Yeah, and, like, and, he, and he pay the bills, you know. Right, and like he pay the bills, you know. Or, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it was not just it was just 
the legacy of stuff doing and you know and obviously that that opportunity doesn't come but what all the time so you mm -hmm. know um i did that and yeah we was just knocking out tracks every day it was crazy and i mean obviously i ended up getting you know it yeah it was it was a great it was a great time and then obviously google bought us so let's go back to the music hmm? because how did you choose i mean coming from a Ghanaian family yes we all are doctors and lawyers and engineers, oh, yes. right? So, <laughs> so I'm sure you study something proper, right? As mm -hmm. part of your your your, uh, to, your yeah. education, mm -hmm. exactly. So how did the music and sound engineering become part of your story? Like, where well, did you You know, my, my father, actually, my father was a doctor. He used to DJ. He had a lot of records and stuff like that. And I, and I okay. kind of, I wanted to get into music. And I remember clearly and vividly when I, Decided I want to get into music because because I wasn't I didn't play an instrument and stuff and I didn't mm -hmm. know how to get into music, mm -hmm. and at the time I was living in LA for a while and I was working in LA, and that's where I learned about computing like in computing web mm -hmm. processing and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and then I left LA and I came to London and I worked for a company called ICL that was before university Got before it. I mean just during my university time yeah, mm -hmm. so I remember walking into a company called ICL which now is I think it's Fuji or something like Fujitsu. But I walked in and I remember clearly there was this box on the shelf called, uh, it was the box for Windows 3.1. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there was a keyboard in it, a uh, piano. Uh, okay. And I said, ah, because I think my computer, my computer should be able to play music, but I never done. But that then, so I did that research and that's when I found out there's something called MIDI, MIDI interface, MIDI. Yes, I remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And luckily for me again, on that day or the next day, on the company notice board, there was a MIDI Training. No, no. There was a MIDI module for sale, uh, Yamaha uh, FB01. Uh-huh. Okay. Right? So I bought that. I said, oh, there's something, MIDI. I bought it. I didn't even have a clue how to use it. I just bought it. Yeah. <laughs> and then I realized, and then there was something called the Atari. Yes. So I bought an Atari. The video game. No, the, no, the computer, the Atari 10, 1040. That's, oh, okay. And, right. And it had something called Cubase on there, which was yep. a sequencer. Yep. So I bought that, and I bought a keyboard, and... That was it. I said, wow. I put some notes in and he was playing the music. I said, wow, this is this is cool. Yeah. And also like a nerd as a matter of that time, yeah. you know, I, I researched it. And that's how I taught myself engineering or programming and then engineering. And then I went to a school called School of Audio Engineering. That was after uni. Yeah. And I did that for a year. The reason why I did that, but before that, I was at, whilst I was at uni, I had a record label. Okay. So... And that's when Warren G came up with this track, ah, this first it track. It wasn't Regulate? Regulate. Yeah. So I used that sample to, for, for a hit in London. But then I was I was actually in Def Jam in New York. Really? To go and clear the license. Ah, and okay. as I was in the lift, yeah. walked in the Fujis before they were the Fujis. Oh, wow. Yeah. So The they, Fujis before they were, they were the Fujis. Fujis, yes. Wow, okay. And then, not just that, when they came to London and basically I worked on one track for them as an assistant engineer yeah. for Rumble in the Jungle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we yeah. did that in Air Studios. Okay. So Where's we met Air? again Is and they actually remembered me, huh? Where's Air? It's in Hampstead. Hampstead, It okay. belongs to Sir Martin, George Martin, the guy behind the Beatles. Got it. So Got it. Oh, that's Beatles. why I knew I yeah. didn't so heard he of created, it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, so so yeah, <laughs> and they remembered you. Well, yeah, yeah. It was probably a big day for them. Of we course, yeah. We never left. Every, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and obviously, and then obviously we were speaking, and, and I was, then you were, and I was, it was Pras, was Pras. Yeah, yeah. my accent. You're yeah. from London. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know, whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's coincidental that I came back and I met them at, and there was a guy called Paul Epworth that was supposed to engineer, and he didn't turn up. So they called me and to help engineer the track. 
Okay. That's cool. That's very cool. Switzerland. Uh Knowing you, a lot of your sensibilities, I think, are a bit Swiss, right? So (laughs) (laughs) how did your family end up in Switzerland? My father was a doctor. Okay. So basically he was working in Switzerland also with WHO and stuff like that. So Okay. So that's how he ended up in Switzerland. And he was also doing his training there and his thesis and writing books and stuff like that. So okay. yeah. Um, so the typical go abroad for education story. Yeah, and yeah. Like yeah, he was a gynecologist and stuff. And then yeah, so that's how I ended up in Switzerland. And obviously um at that very early age. So I would say my formative English in term my formative language in terms of schooling was German. Got it. Yeah, and then I speak Swiss German, and obviously then being in in a trilingual comp- country, you also learn to speak Italian and French. Ah, right, 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 right. Culturally, I had a cultural blast, and then from there, my father met my parents decided to go to Ghana during the Rollings era. Oh. Don't even ask why they went, <laughs> because it was, at the time, there was a big famine in Ghana. Yeah. They decided to go to Ghana. Right. So there is me in Switzerland with my ketchups and chips. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. They dragged me all the way to Ghana, straight to boarding school. Mm. So it was like a shock. And in boarding school that time, there was no food. And you had all sorts of survival tricks. So you are literally, (laughs) yeah. So that's where I think that's where you think about hacking the mindset. How do I hack a mindset to survive in this drastic? But the funny thing is, though, I must admit, which is quite interesting. And I'm not trying to show that I'm like, I was like a genius or clever, but... Having lived in Switzerland and Germany as a kid, you were exposed to much more at that time. Right. To huge TV stations, this, 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 that, culturally, what you're doing. I mean, I was like skiing, I was uh, rafting, I was mm-hmm. doing Robinson Crusoe, going to the forest, building tree houses, right. understanding, you know, being part of the scouts, understanding how sure. to survive and, you know, rafting and all kinds of stuff and you really as a kid by that time I was about 12 I mean the stuff I've seen and the stuff you see on TV whereas you come to Ghana the kids yeah you know and they're all exposed to one TV show you right. know and with Osofodazi yeah or Inspector Bediako was you know what I mean? at that time or Supumugiaro <laughs> <laughs> you know so at that time I think my mindset was that of maybe someone in Ghana who was 18 or 19 Okay, but you went when you were studying, say, what, 12? 12, yes. Got it. You know, so the conversations I could have or I could understand, mm-hmm. I could relate to guys who are much older than me. Got right? it. So obviously, being that little smart kid coming to Ghana and <laughs> got in boarding school, I quickly sort of wittingly applied. <laughs> so, <laughs> Your advanced skills. <laughs> so I, I must admit, I had a great time in Ghana, in, mm-hmm. in Achimota. I mean, and I was never bullied. I, yeah. I found, always found my way of getting out of bully, whether I had to pay my way, bribe my way, whatever. But, you know, and I see some of my mates being in, oh man, they, when they went to some really tough time and I started to wonder how now they, some of them must have been scarred from what they went through back then. Got it. You know, it. but. And I mean, that's, that's par for the course in many boarding schools. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I mean, don't think of them. I think, you know, boarding school, the first couple of months, I hated my parents who put me there. Yeah, of course. But after that, yeah. I'm like, I'm loving this. Yeah. You know, you and. Are, you're independent. Independent. At a very young age. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're learning this and I mean, oh, man, you know, just leaving school and then back then, you know, trying to make money for places called Tema Station, yeah. you know, all kinds of stuff, you know, you just, and your mates, your friends became your family yeah. and, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, 
the kind of people that, or the kind of mates you have in boarding school and the whole, everybody coming from different, not different cultures, but upbringings, you know, like some are very refined, some were not really refined. And you just in the melt of all sorts of upbringing from president's son right. to diplomat's son, from sure. a foreign person coming in, from someone whose dad comes from a village from Nima, but they have money and they want to be in there. So you have this, this and so and you learn how to actually put up with all sorts of characters. Yeah. You know, you just learn because if you don't, you just, you won't survive. Right. You know, right. you just got right. also, I mean, I, I'm not, not even beyond the scope of this, but I could go into some things <laughs> and you're like, how in hell, you know? <laughs> Thanks for joining us for part one of our conversation with Kwame Achenpong. Be sure to join us next time when Kwame will talk more in depth about the technical aspects of his innovative work and more about the life that he's leading as a global citizen. As always, you can catch us at globalcitizenspod.com and wherever you find your podcasts. Bye for now. Bye for now.